during World War I, uh, there were some Turkish uh, soldiers that uh, decided that they would creep up a hillside near Jerusalem, and they were going to rip off uh, a guy's sheep. And so they went, and uh, they began to kind of scatter the herd. And there were a handful of them, and uh, they began to drive this, this little flock of sheep right out. And uh, with uh, their, um, t- you know, all their uh, equipment in tow, they were just driving, driving. And, and then all at once, the shepherd was startled, and uh, he heard all the commotion outside. And as he finally um, got right outside, uh, he noticed that uh, most of his flock was being driven away off in the distance. And he, he began to really contemplate to himself, I mean, what am I going to do? I mean, he knew he wasn't going to go take them by force, or he would most likely be killed. He knew that he wasn't going to be able to stand up against them. And so uh, what he did is what he instinctly would always do, that when his sheep were scattered or he saw them off in the distance or one was wandering, he would simply call out to them. And as he called out in his loudest voice, he noticed something that was happening. Those Turkish soldiers were going everywhere trying to keep those sheep being driven off, but they just wouldn't do it. And the one thing he knew they couldn't control is once those sheep did hear his voice, that they would come running. And sure enough, those Turkish soldiers had their equipment in tow. They had everything they needed to drive them out. But the one thing they couldn't do is keep those sheep in their presence. And the reason why is because those sheep heard their shepherd's voice and they went running. Well, that's what Jesus is trying to say in John chapter 10. Jesus is trying to make the point to people who would read this word, the scripture in John 10, and he wants us to simply know that if you are his sheep, you're going to hear his voice and you're going to follow. You're going to obey him and you're going to go running. What's interesting is that Jesus isn't merely just talking to us, but he was actually talking to a group of men who believed that they had a shepherd in Moses and that they should follow Moses well. Matter of fact, in John chapter 9, just before you get to uh, this narrative in John chapter 10, you see a man who was born blind. The disciples ask early on in verses 1 and 2, they say, why was this man born blind, Jesus? Because of his sin or his parents' sin that he was this way. And Jesus' reply is an amazing one, which I love. And he says, it's neither. This, this man wasn't born this way because of his sin or his parents' sin. He was born this way so that God may be displayed through his life with great power. We oftentimes look at people and we think, oh, if they're born in a certain way, if they have some challenges, then it must be because of sin in the past. It must be because of something they've done or their parents have done. And that was the adage there in in the times in Jerusalem and uh, in other areas. And that's what Jesus says. He goes, it's neither. It's just so that God may be displayed in his life. That sometimes God displays himself best in our weakness. And so he says, it, it, it's neither. This, this guy's born blind, and, and I'm going to do a great work there. And Jesus in, runs into this man, and, and he actually heals him. And he encourages him to take mud, put it over his eyes, and he goes, and he washes it off, and he comes back. And it, as he does, he can see for the very first time in his life. He can see. And so he's excited, and then there's a group of Pharisees there, and they're wondering what his excitement is about. And so they ask him, hey, what's going on? And, and he says, look, I can see. I've been born blind my entire life, and I can now see. And then they ask him the question, well, who did it? I mean, what, what did it look like? Now, if you've ever caught this in this narrative, it's pretty important. The guy was blind. See, I think y'all missed that last week, so I wanted to point it out. Like, how could he answer that question? And so he does. He goes, I don't know what he looked like. 
I was blind. Now, I do know that, that he encouraged me to go, and I, I washed this mud off of my eyes, and now I see, and I've come back, and, and I don't know. All I know is that I was blind, and now I see. And so they ask him a question. Well, well, who, who did this? And he goes, I already told you. I, I, I can't tell you exactly who did it. So they go and they get his parents and they bring mom and dad into the scene. And, and they don't want to answer too many questions in fear of the Jews, but they ask us one question, is this your son? Mom steps up and she goes, yes, indeed, this is my son. This is the, the very son that I bore life to. And he is mine. He was born blind and now he sees. And then she, they don't say much else. And so the, the attention spotlight turns right back to this man who was born blind and, and they ask him again, hey, uh, who did this? And he goes, listen, I'm telling you the same thing again. Matter of fact, he goes, I've already answered this the first time. And he goes, what, are y'all wanting to be disciples of this guy? Is that why you keep asking me the same question over and over? You want more information so you can follow him? And in that moment, they say, listen to me, you don't talk to us like that. Who can teach us? You're following this man, and we are followers of Moses, the shepherd that we know. And then they dismiss him from his presence. And then Jesus comes along the scene, and Jesus speaks to this man, and this man decides that Jesus is indeed the one in whom he should follow. And his eyes are now open. His heart has been illumined. He's been brought out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ, and now he chooses to follow him. He's going to become obedient to him. And then meanwhile, Jesus uses this incredible moment while he's got this, this blind man here, most likely his parents, and all of these Pharisees to use this as a pinnacle for teaching. And so he says, this is who I am. And in John chapter 10, he just is going to lay out that I am the good shepherd and that I, I know my sheep. And the way that I know them is that they, uh, they hear my voice and they follow me. And then in John chapter 7, I want, uh, John chapter 10, verse 7, I want to pick up this narrative because Jesus makes this claim that we saw last week. And in verse 7, it says, So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not listen to them. Now, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to underline the word door there. Jesus is the door. He, he is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is the entrance to the kingdom of God. He's going to make this statement later in John chapter 14, verse 6, as Thomas is wondering, Jesus, how do we know the way to go? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says, I am the way, is in a sense what he's saying, I'm the door. And so what I want to remind you of is this, is that when a shepherd would go for a night's rest, they would bring them in to a, a, a pen, a four-by-four pen, and most likely had just one gate on it. That gate or that door was the only way in, the only way out. And so when a shepherd would bring his sheep in for the night, before he goes to rest, he would let them pass by, and he knew them, and he would count them, and he would examine them, and he would make sure everything was good. They would put them in the sheepfold, the pen, and then they would go and rest. The next morning, that sheep herder would come, and the only way those sheep would follow him was what? If they heard his voice. And so just as he allowed them in the door, they're going to exit the door by following him. He's not going to prod them out. He's simply going to call, and they're going to follow. Why? Because if you know God, Jesus is making the statement that you'll follow him. You'll, you'll hear his voice, and you'll be obedient to him. Meanwhile, while there are sheep that follow the good shepherd, he also says that there are thieves that came before, robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. And he gives the impression of that it didn't matter who was standing at the door. If there was an imposter at the door, and they called to the sheep, the sheep aren't going to follow 
They could get into the pen. They could try to rile them up. They could try to herd them out the door, but they're not going to go. And the reason why is because they're imposters, they're thieves, they're robbers. Now, who is Jesus talking to? He is speaking specifically to these men, the Pharisees, who claim to be the shepherds of Israel in this day. They claim to know something that other people don't know. I love the picture in Matthew 23 that you see that they tie up cumbersome loads for people, is what Jesus said, but they're not willing to carry them themselves. Jesus makes the, uh, the example in Matthew 22, Matthew 23, that they are what, like, they're like cups. They look good on the outside, but their interior is awful. They're like a grave full of dead men's bones. What he is saying about these men is, you clearly are not good examples for the people. You claim to do one or say you claim to say one thing, but you do another. You, you claim to be divine uh, messengers from God that you're following in some way um, Moses, but I don't see it. What he is essentially saying to these these men, but in verse six of John chapter ten, he says, "I say it, and they don't hear it. They cannot perceive it. It's just if the only thing that they're going to hear is if Satan was." giving them the father of lies, some incredible lie, they would, they would wrap their heads around it, embrace it, and walk in it. But because Jesus is giving them truth, they simply can't wrap their heads around it, and they won't walk in it. And so here's what they do know. They do know that Jesus claims to be divine, but what they don't know is that they seem to be false shepherds. But Jesus goes, you are a false shepherd. This is nothing new. You're imposters. You're traitors. You're not following us and the one true messiah you see the picture there matter of fact the reason i say this is nothing new because even in acts chapter 5 you're going to get this picture in acts chapter 5 just look at this in verse 33 uh there was a group of pharisees that were uh being counseled over holding paul and his his uh brothers when they heard this they were enraged they wanted to kill them but a pharisee in the council named gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people stood up and he gave orders to put these men outside for a while and so here it was they were deciding what to do with paul and his men should we kill him? Should we imprison him? And, and Gamaliel stands up and he goes, listen, 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 listen. We're getting, we're getting way too far here. What we should do is consider what others have done before us. And so in Acts chapter 5, he just says, men of Israel, take, take care what you're about to do with these men. But before these days, there was Thudius who he rode, rose up. He claimed to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and that came to nothing. So he goes, you remember Thudius? He, he, he rose up for a while. There were a group of men that followed him. He died, and then guess what? They all went home. Then he goes, and, and, and just consider Judas. Judas the Galilean, he rose up in the days of census, and he drew away some of the people after him. But again, he perished, and, 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 and then they let it alone. For if this is the plan, the undertaking of man, hey, if, if it's them, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, he goes on to say, it will last. So here it is, this, this man, uh, just literally a few months after Jesus' death, is saying, listen, we should not get over-alarmed here. If there's a man who claims to, to be divine or claims to be a, a shepherd of some way, let him lead. And if, if he dies and they disperse, we know it wasn't anything. But if he dies and it doesn't disperse, then guess what? Maybe we should hold attention to it. Maybe he was someone. And so Jesus is speaking to a group of men who, in this case, we're familiar with false leaders coming up. There were many people who were deceiving others. And in this question here, 
you have two parties looking at one another. You have the Pharisees, who they would claim to be shepherds of Moses, leading the people. And then you have another one who would claim to be the divine Son of God, the one who can take away sin of the world, who has the ability to forgive sin, who has the ability to lay his life down, take it up again. And he's looking eye to eye with these other men who would claim to be shepherds. And he's going, there's only one true one here. You see the picture? It's almost as if it's a debate that's taking place. And Jesus is simply saying, you need to choose. Who are you going to follow? And then verse 9, he goes, I am the door. And that's really the claim that he made last week as we looked at it. I am the door. Meaning, the sheep, they pass by me. I know them. They're mine. They come in. They go out. The only way that you and I, as God's people, as his sheep, can eat green pasture and enjoy still waters is because we've passed under the rod of God, that he knows us, we are his. He knows us forward and backwards. And so he goes, if anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. He'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come. They may have life and have it, what? Abundantly. And so here, we talked about this last week. We, we oftentimes have a contextual problem here. What I mean by that in verse 10 is that oftentimes we say, oh, the thief, that must be Satan. But in, contextually, the thief is anyone used by Satan that would lead God's people somewhere they shouldn't go. It's a thief and a robber. So in this case, it's the Pharisees. In some cases, it could be a pastor who's lording their uh, dominance over the people. It could be a pastor who's in it for the wrong motives, the wrong reason. It could be, it could be a variety of people in this day and age that are calling people to leave the God that died for them to follow something else. And so in this case, he goes, it's the Pharisees. You're leading people the wrong way. I am the door. I know my sheep. They follow me. I've come to give life and give it to the full. You got the picture? Capiche? Comprende. Come on, a little comprende. Come on. There we go. We can move on now that I got that, right? And so then the question is, is okay, if, if Jesus is the door, what else is he saying? He goes, also, I am the good shepherd. And then he's going to show you three reasons, probably nothing new to you, but I want you to, I encourage you to write them in your Bible. He goes, first, a, a shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. A shepherd's willing to die for his sheep. Now think about it, not just Jesus, but just think about a, a good shepherd. Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And he lays his, down, his life down for his sheep. Now, interesting enough, Jesus chooses to use two words here. And John writes them down with pinpoint precision. And these two words, I think, exemplify and make up this text. And the reason why is because he goes, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, literally in the Greek, he would say, I am the good shepherd, the good one. That's what it literally would mean. So here we get in, in, in the English, it says, I am the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd who lays his life down. But literally in the Greek, we go, I am the good shepherd, I'm the good one. Why? Because he's inferencing that I am the good one and you guys are the bad ones. And then he uses the word good there to, to, to be a word in the Greek called kalos, which simply means magnificent with splendor. It's rightly and genuinely approved. Meaning, Jesus says, I came from the Father. I'm full of grace and truth. I am approved. I am genuinely a sent. He, he is the one who measures up. He fulfills all that God needed a shepherd to fulfill. Do you see the picture there? That's a beautiful thing. So he goes, I am the good shepherd, the good one. I am the one 
who is the door. I am the one who lays his life down for his sheep. And then you think, okay, I get it. God died on the cross for our sins. And we share that with our kids all the time, do we not? Like, hey, Jesus died on the cross for you. And what they envision is a man being hung on a cross. He gave us his body. We, we share uh, in the Lord's Supper a broken body and blood spilt. And we think that's an incredible picture. I mean, anybody would lay down a, his life is, is just an awesome thing, right? But then you look at the word life, the, the word that Jesus uses there, and it's even more incredible in my opinion because he, he doesn't use a, a word meaning body like literally flesh and blood. He uses the word suke in the Greek, which literally means breath and soul. So, so Jesus is giving the emphasis here that I'm not literally, I'm not just going to die. I'm not just going to have nail-pierced hands. I'm not going to just have... a, a a spear thrust through my side, but I am literally going to take this to the very core of my being. I am laying my life down, everything I have, all of my essence, all of my being, all of my power, everything within me. My entire soul is feeling the weight of sin. I'm laying my life down for my sheep. So Jesus didn't just die because he had the authority to take up his body again. He died because he wanted the full brunt of sin, Isaiah 53, the iniquities of us like a lamb led to the slaughter to be felt among him. And so he takes it to the very core. You see that? And he lays his life down for his sheep. He's willing to die so that we may be rescued. Now think about it in in, in terms in which we can understand. If you and I were shepherds, you and I are shepherding sheep for a variety of reasons. One, because sheep need to be fed. Two, sheep need to be protected. Three, sheep, if they scatter, they need to be pursued, and they need to be found, and they need to be sought after. And so a shepherd is an arduous task in which they are watching and, and caring for sheep, or for any flock for that matter, and that's their job. And so they stay awake, why? Because they want to make sure that they are the scapegoat if there's an enemy that prowls around. And so if there's a lion that comes, the reason the shepherd stands up is to protect his flock. And that's what a shepherd would do. He would willingly lay his life down. He would go to battle against a wolf or a bear or a lion, any of those cases. And so we know that David was a mighty man of valor. And here's why. It's because he was a shepherd that he fought against lions and bears. That's why people exalted him and held him as one of Israel's greatest kings. It's why people like the Pharisees loved David and they loved Moses. Why? Because they were good shepherds. They were mighty men. They were tough and they were rugged. They were the one who stood at the door of their camp and said, you're not coming in here. These are my sheep. And that's what they loved. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the scapegoat. I stand before the enemy in front of my people. He can have me. He can penetrate even to the depths of my soul. I will lay my life down so that my sheep are set free. Do you see this incredible picture, this illustration that Jesus is saying? See, the reason why that they understood it is because in that day, they knew that the shepherd had an incredible task. In Exodus chapter 22, you, you get some instructions about if you had someone else's animals or what you were to do if someone else had lent you an animal. And so in our day and time, let's just kind of give examples that you and I can understand. I mean, we're a bunch of East Texas rednecks, or at least I am. If you have a a group of 
cows that you want to breed, oftentimes you'll call up your buddy and say, hey, man, can you lend me your bull for a couple of months? And so the guy would bring a bull. Well, get this. If, if you're there and one day the bull just comes up missing and you go, hey, I don't know, something must have attacked him and drug him off. Exodus 22 says that's not a valid excuse. Matter of fact, if something happens to an animal lent to you in your care, if you're shepherding a flock, an animal, a goat, sheep, cows, whatever it is, and something attacks and drags it off, you better go after it. And even if it kills the animal, you better bring back an ear, you better bring back a tail, you better bring back a, a leg, you better have something showing that you're validated. Do you see the picture? See, the reason why that this is so important is because Jesus makes this next statement in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who does not own sheep sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Do you see the picture? If you don't have an investment as a shepherd in the animals you're protecting, you could care less what happens to them. Which is exactly what Jesus is saying about these Pharisees. Listen to me. You have a man that's born among you blind. You've not cared for him this day because you thought he was a sinner. His parents were sinners. You had nothing to do with him now. Now Jesus heals him. He comes. He tells you about the Messiah. You want nothing to do with it. You cast him out as a blasphemer. You say, get out of my presence. And who are you to teach me? And then Jesus comes along and he goes, and listen, he's one of your flock. And you've not cared for him. Who do you think you are? You're not a shepherd that's willing to lay your life down for sheep. All you are is a hired hand who could care less about what happens to your people. Which makes the emphasis in Matthew 22 and 23 when he said, you tie up cumbersome loads on your people in which you're not willing to care yourself. It means if you're a shepherd and you don't care for your sheep, then, then you're, you're a thief. You're a, a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. You just get out of the way and you let your entire herd be, be in, incredibly mauled. But a good shepherd stands in the way. See, Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays his life down for sheep. And listen, he didn't lay his life down for sheep that were smart, that were intellectually intelligent. He didn't lay life, his life down for people who had it together. He laid his life down for people like you and me. It's, it's a picture of Romans chapter 5, 6, and 8. For while we were still weak, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then, and then the writer here, Paul, he goes, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Like, I mean, even if they're really good, very rarely will somebody die for one of them. And he goes, and, and then maybe suppose somebody perhaps would, would lay his life down for a good person every now and then. He goes, but Christ, while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were ungodly, while we were sick, while we were lame, while we were blind, while we were cursed, while we were intellectually um, dumb, Christ died for us, laid his life down for us. And now he says, I'll protect you, I'll feed you, I'll care for you, I'll comfort you. And, and if you seem to wander off, and you're prone to leave the God that you love, God says, I will follow you. I will call you back. You'll come to me. Do you see this incredible picture? That's what a shepherd does. And then in verse 13, he says, he goes, 
He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for his sheep, speaking of the false shepherd. And then in verse 14, but he goes, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. See, he goes, I'm not just the shepherd because I lay my life down. I die for my sheep, but I also am the good shepherd because I know my sheep. A good shepherd knows his sheep. I mean, think about it. Think about the, the sheepfold, the, the pen that when the shepherd would go off at night, he would let them cross through. He knew his sheep. He watched them. He called them out. They followed him. He knows those who were intimately his. And then, but he uses this word again in the Greek that I find interesting because he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And he chooses to say this four times, whether he knows you or you know him or he knows the father or the father knows him. He uses the word gnosko four times. And what he's referring to is a word that would be used interchangeably within the Jewish culture for intimacy. It's the same picture that you would get in the Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when you see, now Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son named Cain. That same Hebrew word is translated in the Greek as gnosko, which simply means he knows us intimately. But underline that, he knows us intimately, but also look at this, but also the sheep know who. See, here's the thing that you and I need to understand. And maybe if you don't hear anything else I've said today, this may be a highlight for you. It is not a problem for God to know you. It is not a problem for God to know everything intimately about you. But where the problem lies is us knowing him. See, I I want you to understand the God of the universe who knows all. Psalm 147, 4 and 5, God knows the stars. He knows how many there are. He knows everything. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 147, 4 and 5, even his wisdom is infinite. There's nothing that abounds he doesn't know about. Proverbs 15, 3, he knows good and evil. There's everything about him he knows. To the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, he said, Jeremiah, before ever a day came to be, I knew I'd call you out of Israel as my prophet. Psalm 139, 1 and 2, though, look what he says. David says, O Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You understand my thoughts from afar. So God knows when we come, when we go. He even knows our thoughts before ever one comes to be. Verse 4, Psalm 39, he goes, he, he knows what we say. Lord, you know what's on our tongue before even a word comes to be. Psalm 139, 14 through 16, he goes, God, I'll give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought, even the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. God, before even one chromosome came to be, you knew who I was. God, before even I was conceived in my mother's womb, you knew who I was. Even then, all the days of my life were written in the book. Before even one of them came to be. Do you see the infinite knowledge of God? Matthew chapter 10. He says, listen, I know when a sparrow falls to the ground. How much more do I not know you? I know every hair on your head. Jeremiah 22, 24, he, uh, 23, verse 24, he says, Can a man hide from himself that I do not see him, declares the Lord? No. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? God says, you can't run from me. You can't hide from me. Jeremiah 16, 17 says that he sees our sin. Job 34, 21, 22, he sees all of our steps. He knows the order of those steps. Isaiah 66, verse 18, he knows our thoughts. He knows our deeds. You get the point here? Job 11, 11, he knows false men. For he knows false men and he knows iniquity without investigating. He knows shepherds and false shepherds. He knows sheep and those who claim to be wolves in sheep's clothing. He knows 
people in and out, forward and backwards. And literally, there were another 150 verses that I could have read to you, but I chose not to for the sake of your benefit. God knows his people. The question is not, does he know you? See, he knows you, whether you are far off from him or whether you are close to him. He knows you whether you are in sin or you're walking in righteousness. He knows you whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life or not. He knows you, but he desires that you know who? Him. He desires that you would know him, that you would not be led astray by a false shepherd, that you would not idolize the things of this life, that you would not graze on things that you think are green pasture and still water but that you would know him and abide in him and seek him. Why? Because he believes that you should know him as he knows the Father and as the Father knows him. That's the picture here. He goes, I want to know you intimately as I do, but I want you to know intimately as I know you. And that's what he says in verse 14 and 15. I'm the good shepherd. I know intimately my own, my own know me. Not just intellectually, but personally, deep down in the heart. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. That's the picture. Do you get this? He loves you. He, he knows you. Why? Because he died for you. So he goes, I'm willing to die for you. I know you. I want to be known by you. But look what else he does. The shepherd always unites sheep. It doesn't scatter them. A good shepherd doesn't scatter them. He draws them to himself. He unites them. Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. I gave you the picture of this last week, but if you weren't here, I want you to see it. It's pretty incredible. In verses 1 through 10, he's speaking specifically to a group of people called Israel. Israel is in a fold called Judaism. They are following after righteous deeds kept by the law. They believe that if they're good moral people, they keep the law, then one day they'll enjoy a bounty of harvest through heaven and God, Yahweh, by their righteous deeds. Jesus says, though, listen, I didn't come to die for the righteous. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. He goes, hey, if you want to gain your life, lose it. For losing your life, you'll gain it. Meaning, if you're trying to be someone in this life, then, then you're probably missing it. If you think that you're going to be a leader in the law, if you're going to keep the law, if you're going to do good moral things, then you need to know that, that that's not who I died for. I came to die for the what? The ungodly, for the sinners. I laid my life down for sheep that are dirty, that wander, that are looking for a good shepherd. Jesus says, that's me. And he says, Israel is is one that they're, they're going to follow him. And listen, it's not happened yet. That's a, it's a future prophecy. It's one that's going to happen in the last days. After Jesus comes back and he raptures his church, then we're going to see a millennial reign, a thousand years in which God is going to call Israel home. Right now, because of Israel's disobedience, he set them on the bench. The best way I can explain it to you in a way, in layman's term, we can all understand. He took the starting quarterback that was not coachable, that did not follow the plays and the leadership of the coach, and he said, I'm going to put you on the bench, and I'll use the second string. Yes, I know he's short. I know he's squatty. I know he's not real fast. I know he doesn't throw real well, but he does what I ask him to do, and we win ball games. And so I'll take you, a Greek people, a Gentile people, you don't look the part. 
but I'll make you mine. And if you'll be obedient and you'll follow me, then we'll get a lot of things done for the kingdom of God through this thing called the church. Which is why I give my life this idea of shepherding. Listen to me. If I, if I could get you to understand how important the church is, if I could help you understand what it means to be Christ's body as he's the head and we are the body, listen to me, we would do amazing things. And that's what Jesus is simply saying. He goes, there is one fold that I'll call out, but right now he goes right here in verse 16, I have another fold that, I, that I'll bring out. They'll listen to my voice, and then one day there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. It means in the end there's going to be Gentiles and Greeks, Galatians 3. He's going to, it's, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're a slave or if you're free. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. It doesn't mean, it matter if you're a man. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. We are all one in Christ. Why? Because we have one shepherd. That's the picture. And then verse 17. For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay my life down and then I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Jesus didn't lay his life down because he had to. Jesus laid his life down because he wanted to. Jesus laid his life down because he desired to make you and I his. He laid his life down not because he knew he had authority to take it up again. Because if he knew that he had authority to take it up again, then we wouldn't have got that incredible picture in the Garden of Gethsemane where there's literally sweat drops of blood pouring from his head. Where he says, Lord, may there be any other way, but, but if not, may your will be done. Can, can this cup pass from me? The idea here is this, God, I know there's no other way, but obedience is something I want to do. And that's what the picture of, he goes, obedient sheep do what they're supposed to do because they enjoy being obedient. And Jesus says, I'm going to be obedient. Yes, you may think it's not a big deal because this is I have power to lay my life down. I have the power to take it up again. And I'll tell you what, what, what would we do if we knew we had the power just to take our life up again, right? But see, Jesus didn't use that. That wasn't his trump card in his pocket. Jesus said, I'm willing to lay my life down. It's the picture of Philippians 2. Have the same attitude of Christ. Why? Because he considered himself worth nothing. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he laid himself down. He became obedient even to what? Death, death on the cross. Like That's the idea. And as he says this, there's dispute, verse 19, among the Jews. So here it is. They've taken it all in. And I don't know about you, but th this is what we would call smash mouth football. They've taken it right on the chin. I mean, he's made it very clear, although, again, it seems that they're not understanding it. He goes, I'm the good shepherd. You're not. I'm the good one, approved, genuinely. You're not. You're false. You're lying. You're deceivers. You mutilate people. When the enemy comes, you get out of the way. Why? Because you don't want to get any blood on you. And so you just let your sheep be attacked. He goes, not me. I lay my life down. Why? Because I have authority to take it up again. And they grumble and they dispute. And then look, there's two arguments here, which I think are incredible, because it's going to take something out of our hand today that many of us have said before in our life. And we can no longer say it after today. And so look at the final two verses, 20 
and 21. Many of them said, hey, this guy is a demon. He is insane. Why would you listen to him? And so there's a group who have heard him say who he is. He's the good shepherd. He's the door. He he's, knows his sheep. He's from the Father. The Father knows him. He knows the Father. He's given his life. He's going to take it up again. They've heard all of that. And what they see is a liar, a lunatic, this narcissistic man who seems to believe that he's divine, that he claims to be greater than Moses and David and all the prophets. And all they see is what? This demon-possessed man that must be a child of the devil. That's what they see. And listen, they haven't got it right much, but I think they got it right here. I genuinely believe that what they're claiming is either has to be an option A or there has to be an option B. And option A is, is that Jesus is a liar and a lunatic. He is a crazed man who claims to be something that he cannot be. Or look at the other argument uh, happening between these men. Others said, verse 21, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. These aren't the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind man? So another group says, wait a second. I've seen the way he interacts. I've seen the way he speaks with people. Never once has he gone delusional. Never once. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I get the claim to be divine. I get the, I get the claim that he's from heaven. I get the claim that he, that he says that he is God. I, I get the claim that he said, yes, I understand. I remember when he said he could forgive sin. I get that. I get that. I get that. But have you seen how he handles himself? He's never once been a a demon-possessed lunatic. He's never gone around. I mean, he he doesn't cut himself. He doesn't scrape himself. He he doesn't speak maliciously or harmful. He doesn't scare people. Matter of fact, people seem to be attracted to him. And then what demon-possessed man have you ever seen heal a man? Have you ever? I mean, mean, you you remember all the things. I mean, you remember he turned water into wine in Cana. I mean, he's made, he's made lame men walk. He's made blind men see. I mean, do you remember that lady that was at the well not too long ago? I mean, she claims to know. I mean, he, he cannot be a demon, possessed man, if he's doing all these things. So here's the deal. You and I need to know that as we send freshmen off to philosophy classes, as we send them off to psychology classes, as professors get a hold of them and they try to rationalize an, ira- in, in, rationalize an irrational thought, you and I should take notice. Jesus cannot be a good man and a good teacher. He is either a crazed lunatic in which we should all take our Bibles and throw them away, or he has to be from God. Because he has the ability to not only take his life up again, but he also has the ability to take ours up again. And what I want you to see is is that for us to walk out of here and go, you know what, I really don't believe the Bible to be true. I do think that Jesus was a good man. I do think he had some really good sayings and some great teachings. Listen to me. You are delusional with all due respect. The reason why is because even these men, said he has to be a liar, a lunatic, or he has to be a Lord. I personally believe that he's Lord. And the reason why is because I've seen him take men who were dead in their sin and he gave them new life. I have seen him personally forgive my sin and give me a new life in Christ. I have seen him walk with me through porn addiction. I have seen him walk with me through 
uh, my own fear of people, my own need to be approved by you. I have seen him walk with me through dark moments of despair. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. And if I only knew him like he knew me, why? Because he's Lord. My prayer is that you would leave and that you wouldn't have the argument to go, oh, he's a good teacher and you know maybe we should heed his words. No, listen to me. He is either a narcissistic maniac or he needs to, he needs to be followed. And what a great thing to contemplate. For me, I choose Lord. And my prayer is that you too would choose Lord and that you would follow him. You would hear his voice and you would obey him. Amen? Why? Because I believe our community still desperately needs the gospel. And I truly believe, I'll say this, and then I'm going to close, that our community needs some people who claim to be God's sheep that do what he says. And so may you be spurred on towards love and good deeds. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, I love you and I thank you for today. I pray, God, that you would send us out with great confidence in knowing that you can be Lord, that you can be the good shepherd, that you know us, that you've called us, that just as we sit and as we rise, you perceive our thoughts, you know the things that are on our lips, you know even the things that we're thinking in this moment. God, you know us the very moment that we were conceived. There's nothing about us that's hidden from you, Lord. And so, God, we, we just say, just as you care for the sparrow and you care that much more for us, God, may we heed that, may we understand that you desire to shepherd us, that you desire to lay your life down for us if we'll simply follow, that you want to know us, to love us and unite us, call us according to your purpose. And so God, may you move in our lives. May you stir our heart's affection for you. and May you unite us together as the body of Christ, the sheep of your shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.